All right, uh, lift off and the clock has started. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Discovery, go at throttle up. And lift off, the final lift off of Atlantis on the shoulders of the space shuttle. America will continue the dream. This is The Space Shot, episode 373, and I'm John Molnix. In today's episode, we're going to catch up on some news, highlight some big pieces of history, and I've got a little commentary too. I hope you like the new intro. I may tweak it a bit here and there, but I felt like it was time for a refreshed intro track. Just a day ago, at the time of recording this, Virgin Galactic launched the VSS Unity spacecraft for the third time. VSS Unity reached Mach 2.47 and went to an altitude of 114,500 feet. This test is one in a series that will lead up to commercial flights. Sadly, these commercial flights are still a distant dream, so don't hold your breath for news of paying customers. In other commercial space news, Blue Origin launched and landed a new Shepard vehicle again back on July 18th. This was the ninth time that a new Shepard rocket had flown and landed. This test was particularly interesting because it was a test of the crew escape system shortly after booster separation. The trial of the escape system and booster landing were successful, which highlights the steady, if not as public progress as the flamboyant SpaceX teams that Blue Origin is making. There's no indications of when the next launch will be, but I'll be passing along news on Facebook when I hear more. If you were up early in the morning like I am this past week, you were treated to the launch and landing of a SpaceX Block 5 Falcon 9 rocket. SpaceX launched 10 more Iridium Next satellites from Vandenberg Air Force Base. A short time later, the Falcon 9 booster was successfully landed in what was described as the roughest sea conditions that SpaceX ever attempted to land in to date. The experimental fairing recovery was unsuccessful. Sadly, those rough seas weren't helping, but I'm sure the company will eventually nail that recovery process as well. During the webcast, it was also mentioned that SpaceX eventually plans to recover the second stage of the Falcon 9, but I wonder if the progress on that front will be geared more towards the big Falcon rocket and not the Falcon 9. We'll see. It'll be interesting to see the tests of the second stage landing attempts whenever that happens. I'm linking to the stories on all three of these launches, so keep an eye out for them in the show notes. Also, there's been a big announcement, if you've been on the internet the past couple days, of what could be a 12-mile diameter lake underneath the surface of the Martian South Pole. I'm linking to a Space.com article that has more detail on this announcement. Now, let's chat about what I've been up to the past few weeks, because it's been a while since we last spoke. My job at Faustin has been keeping me very busy. I work on a lot of cool projects that I can't talk about here, and it's been a fantastic experience so far. As always, the podcast does not represent the views of my employer. My opinions are my own, and anything discussed here on this podcast is done in my free time and not as an employee or representative of Faustin. I'm probably going to have to include that disclaimer in the show from now on, simply because of my new position. Hopefully you don't mind that little bit of legalese. Now that we've got that out of the way, let's get back to some history and commentary. 
If you follow The Space Shot on Facebook, or me personally on Twitter, Medium, LinkedIn, or Instagram, you've probably noticed that I've been very busy on those platforms the past couple of weeks. I just want to extend a big welcome to everyone that just followed the Facebook page for The Space Shot. Welcome to the show. There have been a lot of historical events over the past couple weeks, from Apollo 11 to the final shuttle launch and more. The Apollo 11 launch is a very poignant piece of history for me. I wasn't alive to see it, but researching that mission as much as I have over the past years has made the event very personal to me. One of the other things that really personalized this piece of history for me is when I got to touch and see some of the MOKER, or Mission Operations Control Room, consoles back in January. Being able to touch a piece of history and connect with an artifact in that way was a fantastic experience. Listening to audio is another way I enjoy connecting to the past. Hearing the fuel callouts as the Eagle descended towards the lunar surface, and listening to Neil and Buzz talk as they took their first tentative steps on the moon, helps connect me and all of us to a very transformational time in human history. As much as that event was an American moment, it was also a profoundly human moment. Neil's words as he stepped on the surface of the moon exemplify that statement. I'm going to step off the limb now. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. It's easy to lionize these Apollo missions as the peak of human achievements in space, and I kind of disagree with that outlook. The Apollo missions were a singular event in human history. The budgets necessary to get to the moon were higher than what NASA consistently gets, so to think that NASA should have kept going after Apollo ignores the budgetary realities of the space program. What we've achieved in recent decades with robotic explorers and understanding the effects of long-duration human spaceflight on the body with the International Space Station have been just as significant. NASA's experience on the station wouldn't be possible if it weren't for the trailblazing of Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, Skylab, and the shuttle. The peak of human spaceflight, specifically American spaceflight, because that's what this podcast focuses on, is the fact that we keep going to space. Yeah, there's long periods of downtime between human launches from the United States, and that's unfortunate, but we've still been expanding our knowledge of space with robotic missions launched from the United States and with human missions launched from Russia. The return of human launches from the United States should be about a year away at this point, maybe sooner, fingers crossed. NASA will be announcing the astronauts assigned to the Commercial Crew Program on August 3rd, so we can expect more details on what's going to happen with that program here soon. As I've said before, I think we're living in the most exciting time for spaceflight. Missions like the James Webb Space Telescope and programs like Commercial Crew may have their budgetary issues and timeline problems, but overall, we're at the cusp of a transformational time in space and human history. I'm glad all of you are interested in these developments and are along for the ride here. Until next time, I'm John Molnix, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Roger that. I don't know what it could
This is the Cosmosphere Podcast, Episode 9, Mission Operations Control Room. I'm John Mulnix, and I'm your host for this monthly look at history, science education, and what's up at the Cosmosphere. You can catch me here on this podcast and on my other show, The Space Shot. It's been a while since we last spoke. I've started a new job in the aerospace industry, and I've been exceedingly busy, which is why I haven't had time to sit down and record episodes with the fine people at the Cosmosphere. We appreciate your patience, and I'm excited to dive back into producing these podcasts every month. Also, one other programming note before we get started today. I'm speaking with Tori Bruno, the United Launch Alliance CEO, for the August edition of the Cosmosphere podcast. Due to scheduling issues, that conversation won't be available until late August. I guess he is the CEO of a company that launches spacecraft to pretty much every destination in our solar system, so we can't complain. He's a busy guy. For this month's episode, I sat down digitally with Jack Graber, the Vice President of Exhibits and Technology at the Cosmosphere. We talked about the Mocha Restoration Project that's currently underway at Spaceworks, the restoration and conservation experts at the Cosmosphere. Unfortunately, I didn't have time to chat with Carla about what's up at the museum for this month's episode, but we will hear from her next month. I'm attending the Adult Astronaut Adventure the first weekend in August, and will be sure to chat during my time there. I'm also hoping to get some cool audio content, plus pictures, and more from my time at the Adult Astronaut Adventure, so stay tuned for that. Before we jump into our conversation with Jack, let's listen to some audio from Mission Control during Apollo 11. The people you're about to hear operated the very consoles that are being restored and preserved by Spaceworks. This is audio from the moments leading up to Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin touching down on the lunar surface. Enjoy. Okay, all flight controllers, gonna go for landing. Retro. Go. Fido. Go. Guidance. Go. Control. Go. Telcom. Go. GNC. Go. Ecom. Go. Surgeon. Go. Capcom, we're go for landing. Eagle, Houston, you're go for landing. Over. I do understand. Go for landing. 3,000 feet. Top alarm. 1201. 1201. Roger. 1201. 1201 alarm. Same type. We're go, flight. Okay, we're go. We're go. Same type. We're go. Flight side are right on. Real 2, good, Roger. 2,000 feet. 2,000 feet. Into the ag. 47 degrees. Roger. 47 How's degrees. How's the margin looking, Bob? It looks okay. We're okay. about four and a half. Roger. Eagle looking great. You're go. Altitude update in the eggs. Looks good. Roger. Roger, 12.02. We copy it. How you doing, Control? We look good here. Fine. Roger, how about you, Telcom? Go. Guidance, you happy? Go. Fido. Go. 23. 700 feet, 21 down. 33 degrees. 100 feet down at 19. 540 feet down at 30, and at 15. Attitude hold? Okay, at hold. I think we better be quiet. Huh? Right. 400 feet down at 9. Okay, the only call-outs from now on will be fuel. Take forward. 150 feet down at 4. P66. 30, half down. They're, uh, egg done, uh, 
horizontal velocity. Standard speed down three and a half. 47 forward. Put up. On one and a minute. One and a half down. 70. Today we're talking with Jack Graber, the Vice President of Exhibits and Technology at the Cosmosphere. He's going to tell us a little bit about the process of the Mocha restoration. Jack, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So last time I saw you, it was back in January, a little bit chillier than it is right now in Kansas. And the first of the 19 consoles from Mission Control were being unloaded. Fill us in on what's happened since then. Sure. Yeah. Well, a lot's happened since January. It's uh, got obviously a lot harder uh, here in Kansas. Uh, I think Unfortunately. We're, yeah, we're right around 100 degrees today. But Ooh. along with the heat, the project is getting hot as well. Um, That's good. Yeah, we are uh, right in the thick of things. Last time we had talked to you, we were uh, starting to gather information about uh, what was missing, what wasn't missing, what we need to reproduce, what we don't need to reproduce, and kind of have a... Uh, intro into the consoles and to the process that we'd be going through. Um, at this point in time, um, we are probably, uh, I'm going to say somewhere around 60 to 70% uh, done with the first uh, two rows, the trench and the second row. Uh, okay. We have, um, we've created all kind of parts, including um, the flat panel faces that would be the monitor faces. 
um, that are the more rounded style to look uh, as they did back in uh, the Apollo era versus the shuttle era. Uh, okay. We've, yeah, we've created uh, number counters. Um, we've created a lot of the missing parts. Um, we've cleaned. I think we're just about done to the last console as far as the cleaning process goes. And okay. Pre- yeah, preservation process. So it's going really well. That's awesome. So the biggest thing really is, you know, NASA's wanting to be able to have mission control basically look like it did during Apollo 15. So part of that switch was just like you were mentioning the monitors. There's the switch from the old CRT, the old tubes to a more modern LCD panel uh, just for, you know, like power and everything. Talk a little bit about that process. Like what's what's it been like taking those older monitors out and replacing them with newer technology? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a fun process, especially for some of the guys in the shop and even me myself that uh, remember the old style TVs that grew up with the old uh, channel selecting switch. Oh yeah. Uh, No remote control. You know, if you wanted to change channel, you got up and changed it and you had about four channels. Um, And so the old tube technology, it's, it's fun to uh, recollect on and see you know, the size, the sheer size and mass of what's there compared to what we replace it with is just um, amazing. A lot of times you hear people talk about like our parents, grandparents, the stuff they saw from the horse to the car and that kind of thing. Uh, and sometimes I think we get jaded to what we see in our generations of we had these massive, you know, 80 pound monitors that took up a huge amount of space. Uh, to something that weighs less than a pound and, you know, smaller than a shoebox um, and has, you know, 10 times the capacity and, and resolution that the old stuff did. It's a pretty remarkable change. And, you know, that's that's what's so crazy when we were looking, you know, when, when I was looking at the consoles as they were being unloaded, I saw the inside um, of the consoles for the first time. And that to me was really striking about how they were laid out internally. Cause I'd seen a lot of pictures of the consoles being used, but never of how they were constructed. Can you, can you talk a little bit about, you know, like the design of those and if there's been, you know, any challenges uh, sure. related to the restoration process because of that? Yeah. Um, yeah, they're laid out. Uh, you know, one of the things that really impresses me about the space uh, about NASA in itself, and especially about the space program back the Apollo era, you know, Mercury, Gemini, and that era was the amount of people and the amount of manpower that went into the whole process. Uh, When you see the inside of the consoles and you see the wiring, um, just the simple um, wiring that they did and the routing of the wire and uh, the electronics, uh, you know, this was not a one person job. This was not something, you know, that somebody did in a day. Um, you know, everything was meticulously laid out. Um, even the components themselves, you know, it took a lot of time to do what they did to build these components. It's really quite impressive. Um, they were built to withstand the test of time and, and to be there for a while, you know, comparatively to our throwaway stuff that we have now where you buy it and when it doesn't work, you just throw it away. You know, this stuff yeah. was made to work on. It was made to last. It was made to take a beating um, and it was made to troubleshoot as well. Well, I'm glad you mentioned, you know, the, the fact that it was built to last. Cause when I was looking at the inside of the consoles back in January, I noticed there was, you know, different 
different stamps from different times when they upgraded it for the shuttle program. You know, what are some of the interesting things you found in the process of restoring these, you know, like different components from different dates, um, just, you know, other things inside the console. Talk a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah. Um, a lot of the components, you know, they had to be inspected every year. You find a lot of inspection tags on the components from, you know, from whenever they were used. Um, they also, NASA always did an inventory every year. A lot of these components are, believe it or not, in an inventory all the way down to the small component. And they would go around every year and take an inventory, make sure everything was there. So it's been interesting, um, even though the stuff was not used after the mid-90s, after the shuttle program uh, was closed in that moker room. Um, you know, they still have inspection stickers on them. Um, wow. There are some that aren't as old as some. Sometimes you run onto a, oh, could be a power supply, could be a, a different component that was just a, a indicator um, with indicator lights. Um, some of them go back clear to the 60s. And so it's been kind of neat to see the, um, you know, hey, even though this was used in the 60s, they used this forever. You know, I mean, it, it didn't change. Some pieces obviously had to change um, as the technology did, but some of it, again, you know, lasted for a long time. Well, and it's it's kind of a testament to how those things were built then if that's, you know, that's just incredible oh, that sure. there's that many, you know, older components in there. What are some of the more interesting things that have been found inside the consoles? You sure. Know, just one like of, random things you wouldn't even think of. <laughs> yeah. One of the funny things we found, we found it just the other day. We all had to kind of take a picture of it and laugh. Um, <laughs> on the P-tube stations, and for those that don't know what the P-tube stations are, those were um, the communication devices they would use like at a bank um, where you would stick the tube in and a pneumatic air duct would take it from place to place. Um, yeah. In the P-tube station itself, there is a little sensor switch underneath as we were cleaning, um, you know, that obviously I'm not exactly sure what this sensor switch was for without looking it up a little bit more. But there was a sensor switch that was shimmed with a popsicle stick. And um, <laughs> yeah, so, oh, that's great. you know, you know, they had stuff like that, too, that, you know, even as 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 magnificent as NASA is and technology, you know, um, you know, and especially if you talk to the old astronauts, they were still down to earth guys that if something needed fixed, you find a way to fix it, even if it's a popsicle stick. That is fantastic. You know, that's, those are the kind of things that you might not know about unless you were to actually, like you guys are doing right now, you're taking oh, the no. consoles apart and making sure they're able to be restored. So being able to find I'm sure there's a crazy story behind that popsicle stick. I'm sure there is. Yeah. I'd love to know. <laughs> no doubt. Oh my. Well, you know, and that's the type of thing that it sounds like, you know, NASA and I believe that like the national park service is even involved with this is making sure like all of those things are cataloged down to the popsicle stick as it were. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because the, the room, the mocha room is a historic landmark. So an NHL as they call it. So, Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the park service is involved, you know, to make sure that, you know, this looks, um, you know, appropriate and that, it, you know, yeah, all this stuff, you know, is documented and, uh, recorded and, it, and it's great. It, I'm like you say, I'm sure there's tremendous stories behind some of the stuff. For sure. You know, and that's one of the things as, you know, as we approach the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11, you know, this is 
perfect time to be restoring these consoles. Can can you talk a little bit about what the next, you know, the rest of this year looks like? And then sure. also leading up to the anniversary itself, what what's going to be happening at Spaceworks, at the Cosmosphere, in order to get the Mocha consoles ready? Sure, yeah. So um, right now we're going to um, be completing the first round, uh, which will take us into the fall, late fall, early winter of this year. Um, which at some time um, we will go, we will take what we have. Uh, we will take that back to Houston um, where it will go back to the Moker. It will not be installed right away um, simply because the next two rows, um, if you've ever been in the Moker, are on different levels. Well, mm-hmm. the last two rows are on the third and fourth level, um, so to speak. So if we install the first two rows, it will be in our way to get the last two yeah. rows down and in. So um, the first two rows will basically sit in the moker toward the front of the room um, while they work on carpet, wallpaper, and other things. Um, we will grab the last two rows um, and uh, bring them back like we did this, go through the same process. Um, we will, you know, prep them, we'll clean them, we'll start to put the right parts in, you know, as we can, light them up, put data on the screens. And then um, in the spring um, of 2019, um, we will take those two rows back and we'll have all the rows back in the moker. And at that point in time, we'll begin to set them in place, uh, test them, um, power them up, get them all set, get them secured down, um, and get them ready for July um, so that uh, as viewers come in and they start to have events that the consoles are all ready to go for power and they can uh, shine once again. That, that sounds fantastic. You know, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward. I'm going to try to get down there myself, hopefully um, around that anniversary. So I'm looking forward oh, to yeah. seeing the restored consoles. I was able to see, Oh gosh, it was back in 2016. I went to Houston and I wasn't able to do the the big level nine tour where you get to go behind the scenes and everything, but I was right, able right. to sit in that guest room and I'm really looking forward to seeing the consoles after they're restored. Oh yeah. And, you know, I think too, one of the things is we're sitting there, you know, we have these consoles and we have a lot of them lit up and the screens have data on them and that time's in the shop and they still look like a uh, inanimate object, so to speak, even though they are, they just, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just a console still. And I think uh, once a person gets them in the room and they get powered up and then, you know, a lot of these, um, uh, guys that worked in the room, ex, you know, ex, um, moker guys are donating, you know, personal stuff, folders, coats, cigarette oh, ashtrays, wow. whatever, you know, I think once a person gets papers on them and, you know, because these consoles were never just sitting there powered on with nothing around them, you know, they were, yeah. it was a tool, they, they were made to be used. And so I think once that room starts taking that and you start to see these papers and, you know, jackets and chairs, you know, uh, it will take again on another level of just simply having a console, you know, sitting there with power on, um, you know, so I think that will be really cool too, as that, as that evolution takes place and that they start to really become alive and, oh, wow, this, you know, are they using this room or, you know, (laughs) (laughs) they're breathing life into them again. That's really awesome. Yeah. Well, and you know, like the front room consoles, that's what everybody sees. If you, you know, if you've been to Houston, but the Cosmosphere also has a lot of the back room consoles. And for some of those, if students are coming out for space camp at the Cosmosphere, 
Can you talk a little bit about the uh, consoles that they're able to use? Yeah. So uh, what we did this year was we have um, up in our, uh, for our Falcon simulator, for our space shuttle simulator, uh, we uh, just redid the mission control room that we use. And we took some of these backroom consoles, which the same size, shape, color, um, everything's the same about them, um, and integrated them into our mission control room. And then what we did, rather than take them back to 1950, so to speak, is mm-hmm. we took them to 2020. Uh, we put new computers in them and new monitors. And even though the look is still, they still look like shuttle um, with all the faces, with the push buttons and that kind of stuff. All the insides are actually communicating with each other um, with the wow. Falcon simulator itself um, and with new technology. And so they're able to you know, get to the Internet. Um, they're able to, you know, show Google Earth and show um, feed from the ISS, live feed from the ISS right on the console. So which kids think is great. No doubt. Well, I mean, if, you know, for you personally, that's got to be incredibly rewarding not to be able to, you know, just the uh, the consoles for space camp, but now also the actual Moker consoles. I mean, you get to see the past and, you know, now the future. You know, talk a little bit about what that means to you. Yeah, no, it, it, it's very, uh, you know, it's, it's really incredible. And sometimes you just have to kind of stop. Um, like I said, even in the shop, sometimes once we get one lit up and stuff and just stop and Hey, you know, you know, last time these were like this, you know, uh, we were either putting somebody in the space shuttle or we were putting somebody on the moon, you know? And so, um, you just have to kind of sometimes stop and go, wow, this is, this is something, these things are really, you know, really quite impressive pieces. Um, and, um, you know, then the same with the, once we get them into camp, you know, then, you know, you have a generation that, you know, was born before the, you know, that was born after the space shuttle quit, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so t- for them to be able to sit behind something like this, that, you know, wasn't even in existence when they were alive, you know, is, is really cool. And to be able to tell them, yeah, that's what these were used for. And they can go back and, you know, and look in their classroom and their history and say, Hey, I know what that is, you know, and have some personal one-to-one of what they were actually, you know, reading about in their books in school and what they're actually doing in the summer. That, yeah. I mean, for me, you know, even, even as an adult, that's a pretty cool thing to be able to have that connection. So I think you guys are doing some incredible work there. And next time I'm out in August for space camp for myself, I'll definitely <laughs> have to check out the progress. Oh yeah. 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 Definitely stop by the shop. Cause like I said, yeah, they're there. They look a whole and not a whole lot different. Um, you know, that's one of the things that a lot of people, um, and we hope to be able to somehow, some way, uh, get across to people or present to people because if you aren't really familiar with them, if you were to take a shuttle one and stick it by one that we've retro uh, retro faced or um, taken back in time, you mm-hmm. know, you may not notice a whole lot of differences um, mm-hmm. until you start looking at some of the pictures. And um, that's what kind of really, you know, set it off for us in a sense is in order to make some of the buttons light, try to get it as close as we can to what would have been mm-hmm. on at a certain point in time is you start looking at the pictures and you're like, Oh yeah, they do look different. Yeah. They do look different. You know, if you just have two of them sitting side by side, nothing's lit up and they're, you yeah. know, sometimes a guy, Oh, what's, what's the difference? Well, when you start looking at the pictures like, Oh yeah, there is a difference. 
<laughs> well, I'm looking forward to being able to see that, you know, firsthand here soon. So sure. Jack, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. You bet. Thanks for having us. And we'll talk to you soon, John. Sounds good. Thanks for listening to the Cosmosphere podcast. Make sure you share and subscribe to the show. If you enjoyed the podcast, leave us a review on iTunes. Reviews are critical to the success of podcasts, so we'd appreciate it if you could take just a minute to leave a rating or review. They help even more people find out about the incredible work that's done at the museum. For the Cosmosphere, I'm John Mulnicks.